Uh, well, we're in week three of our Love, Sex, and God series. And uh, if you are just joining us for that, um, briefly, I'll just mention that the first week we shared about how sex is God's idea. Uh, he came up with it and kind of the implications of that. And then last week we talked about the four purposes of sex uh, that are outlined in the Bible um, and how those four purposes reveal the appropriate context. Uh, for sexual activity, which is a committed covenantal marriage between uh, a man and a woman. And so if you missed either of those messages, I'd encourage you to listen online uh, or uh, request a CD at the table in the foyer. We uh, will, uh, if you request one, we'll have them for you the next Sunday. Uh, They're always free. And uh, so I would encourage you, especially if you're a part of this church, to keep up with this series. Uh, You know, if you miss a week, make sure that you uh, listen and, and stay engaged Uh, with what we are uh, doing. I originally thought this was going to be a four-week series, uh, which would mean next week would be the last week, and I'm sure many of you were hoping it would be a four-week series. But I think it's going to end up actually being more like an eight-week series. And what I've realized as I've been preparing each week is that that really we could go several months in this series and still not say everything that would be good to say, Uh, But I am going to try to get to as many things as I can, things that I feel like are fairly pressing to share in this series, because I think it's going to go around eight weeks, and I thought you might be interested to know some of the things we're going to talk about uh, in the coming uh, weeks. Now, if you don't like one of these topics, I'm not telling you which weeks we're doing it, so you're going to just have to, you know, you're not going to be able to pick and choose, but uh, these are the topics that we're going uh, to look at. We're going to look at how to avoid sexual sin. Uh, We're going to uh, spend a week talking about recovering from adultery. Uh, We're going to talk about what the Bible says about premarital sex, what the Bible says about homosexuality. Uh, We are going to talk about what is permissible sexually within a committed covenantal uh, marriage between a man and a woman. I promise you we'll be very appropriate with how we handle that. Uh, But you know, the Bible says that the marriage bed is undefiled. And so we're going to talk about what does that mean and, uh, and how do we walk uh, that out. And then the final message in the series is going to deal with how Christians ought to relate to our sex-saturated, sex-misguided uh, culture. Uh, how is it that we as Christians can both uh, stand for truth and at the same time uh, absolutely demonstrate God's grace to people. And that message is also going to deal with how do we respond uh, to sexual sin outside of the church, and then how do we respond to sexual sin uh, inside of the church. And actually, there's so much that I'm saying we're going to cover that week that it might actually grow to two weeks. So maybe we have a nine-week series. And so maybe on Christmas Eve, we're still talking about this. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see. Uh, but today, we want to look at what the Bible says Uh, on this topic, uh, what to do when you have sinned sexually. Now, throughout the series, as I just mentioned, we're going to deal with some specific sexual sins, premarital sex, adultery, homosexuality. Uh, But today's topic covers all sexual sin, uh, understood to be all sex outside of the context 
of those four purposes we talked about last week, which is to say all sex outside of a committed covenantal marriage between a man and a woman. And the message comes out of the 51st Psalm. Uh, Here in just a minute or two, I'm going to read the first 17 verses of that Psalm. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, hold your place. We're not going to put it on the screen. Uh, If you need a Bible, they're on either side of the sound booth. uh, So you can be prepared there uh, at the 51st Psalm. Uh, If you are not familiar with the 51st Psalm, it's believed to have been penned by uh, King David after the prophet Nathan came to him and confronted him about his adultery with Bathsheba. If you're not familiar with this story, it's a fascinating story and it, it, it just demonstrates how real the Bible is about things. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat anything. It tells us the worst about its greatest heroes. Uh, But David, King David, had stayed in Jerusalem during a time when his army was off fighting on his behalf. So first problem is he wasn't where he should have been. He should have been uh, leading his army. And, And from the terrace of his palace, as he was just kind of, you know, wasting time, not being where he should have been, he he observed a woman uh, bathing, Bathsheba. His heart was filled with lust for her, and so he sent for her to be brought to him, and he uh, ended up being physically uh, intimate with her. Some of you have commented that it's uh, kind of jarring how many times I am saying sex in each of these sermons, so, so I said physically intimate uh, with her. Uh, he, had, he had sex with her. Uh, she became, uh, <clears throat> she became pregnant, which was really inconvenient because she was married and, and her husband was off fighting on David's behalf. And so David came up with this plan. He brought the husband back uh, from, from, uh, from fighting for the purpose of getting the husband to go and sleep with his wife so that there would be a plausible story that the child belonged to the husband and there would be no question as to, wow, how'd she get pregnant while her husband uh, was off uh, fighting? But, but a problem arose. Uriah did not feel right about enjoying the, the pleasures of marital sex while his fellow soldiers were off fighting. And so he refused to be intimate with her. And so this meant that the child who was going to be born was going to be revealed as belonging to someone else other than Uriah. And so David was so desperate to cover up his sexual sin that he had Uriah killed. He put him on the front lines. He told those around him to fall back and retreat. Didn't get that message to Uriah. And so he was left on an island, left alone, and he was killed. So David committed adultery. And then he had Bathsheba's husband killed. He covered this up for some time. I I think if you look at the timeline of the story, it's maybe up to a year that he kind of lived with this and and covered it up until the time that the prophet Nathan came to him and confronted him about what he had done. When David was confronted uh, by Nathan, he repented of his sin. He, He confessed, he admitted it, and he Uh, repented. And it is believed that he then penned the words of this psalm in response to his sin and to Nathan's uh, confrontation of his sin. 
And so within this psalm, we find a whole lot of good counsel about what we ought to do when we've sinned uh, sexually. Of course, this applies to any kind of sin, but as the specific context is sexual sin, it's especially helpful for us to think of it uh, in that context for our own lives. So let's go ahead and read the 51st Psalm. If you're holding your place there, I'll read and you follow along as I do. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. So what do we do when we've sinned sexually? The first thing that I want to note today doesn't come from the text of the 51st Psalm. It comes from the circumstances surrounding the 51st Psalm. As I noted, this was penned by David after the prophet Nathan had confronted him about his sin. And so here's the first thing we learn. When a person has sinned sexually, it is very important for them to be receptive to the Nathans in their life. It's vitally important for those in sexual sin to be open, to be receptive to the people God sends to them to challenge them, to call them out, to call them to account. But this whole idea is very antithetical to the values of our culture. It is antithetical to a false version of, Of Christianity, to a me and Jesus form of Christianity, to the self help Jesus as life coach who never tells me that he's against anything in my life. He only tells me the things that he's for in my life variety of Christianity. It is antithetical to the everybody just needs to mind their own dang business way of thinking that is so prevalent in our culture, but it is vital to living in a true, loving Christian community that takes seriously the commands of the Bible and takes seriously the well-being of our brothers and sisters in Christ and understands that leaving someone unchallenged in their sin is one of the most damaging and uncaring things that you can ever do to another person. But most of us 
could never imagine calling someone out on their sin because we are understandably conditioned to believe that people will not be receptive. Even Christians largely aren't receptive. I can tell you from personal experience that even gentle attempts at calling someone to faithfulness in the area of sexuality often results in rejection and gets you accused of being judgmental and unkind. This extends to Christian accountability partners who sometimes only listen, spout platitudes to one another about how we all sin, but never actually challenge one another, never actually say, okay, I hear you, but it's time to stop it because we are conditioned that people cannot accept any attempt at guidance or correction. And I want to say something to those of you who may be called to be a Nathan in someone's life. And I want to say something to those of you who may have a Nathan challenge you at some point. For those who God may call to be a Nathan, I want you to consider that the prophet Nathan confronted David even though David had the power to take his life. He was king. If he didn't like what you said, he'd just have you killed. And Nathan confronted him anyway. And Nathan confronted David without regard for whether or not David would be receptive. He confronted him because David was doing wrong and he could not be left unchallenged because of all the damage he was doing, including damage to his own spiritual health. If you have a friend who is involved in habitual sexual sin and you are aware of it, God is likely calling you to be a Nathan in their life and you must obey. So challenge kindly, challenge respectfully, challenge prayerfully and thoughtfully, but challenge without concern for what it'll mean for your relationship, without calculating whether or not they will be receptive. And here's why. It is unloving to leave sexual sin unchallenged. It unleashes too much destruction on the person who's doing it and the people around them. By the way, if as I go along, my voice starts to sound worse and worse, I apologize that it's not quite as melodious as it normally is. Um, Number one, I seem to have a little bit of a cold. Number two, toward the end of the game last night, which I was at, I had to explain to the referees that they were playing football and not patty cake. So anyway... I had to talk really loud so the referees would hear me. And so now I have this. All right. For those of you who God has or may send a Nathan to you, as hard as it is, as difficult as it is, you must be receptive. When God moves upon another person to the extent that they overcome their natural reluctance to get involved and challenge you, you ought to take that seriously. 
And this applies to really any area of challenge between brothers and sisters. Most of us are not looking for a fight. Most of us are not looking to set ourselves up to make someone angry at us. Most of us want to keep our heads down and mind our own business. And so if someone who loves you cares about you enough to work up the nerve to overcome that natural tendency and challenge you, you ought to pay attention. You ought to take that seriously. Now, it doesn't mean they're always going to be right, but you better pay attention and answer honestly in your heart if they are right. And you ought to take this as though God himself is challenging you. If the person is right about their concern and you know you're right, you need to receive it as God himself challenging you because if they're right about what they've approached you about, God himself is challenging you. He is working through another person to challenge you about something in your life that displeases him and you need to be open and receptive to them. If you dismiss them, then you are not just dismissing them, you are dismissing God. Matthew Henry wrote this, those who have been overtaken by any fault ought to reckon a faithful reproof the greatest kindness that can be done them and a wise reprover their best friend. It applies to all kinds of situations, but certainly it applies to sexual sin. If you've ever had someone love you enough uh, to refuse to leave you in a wrong way of thinking or a wrong way of living, to challenge an attitude, to challenge your conduct, to challenge your sexual sin, you ought to view that person as the truest of friends. And so when we've sinned sexually, what we have to do is be open to the Nathans in our lives. And when we've sinned sexually, we also need to see our sin for what it really is. Look at verse four. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you're proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. So many people today, including large numbers of Christians, have completely lost the ability to see sin for what it really is. And, and, and so we, we, we say things that aren't true. We say, well, I made a mistake. We say, yeah, I didn't live up to God's best in that situation. As if what we did was like okay or like somewhere between okay and good, it just wasn't God's best. You understand. I could have done better. Pretty large numbers of people, even Christians, have simply decided that sin is not sin. Okay, well, I know that's your opinion, but I don't share that opinion. So there is no, you know, it's not sin. Well, we, we have, well, we have. Right, right here it is. Well, okay, that's your opinion. That's your interpretation. And there we go, just on and on and on. None of this was true for David. He saw sin for what it really is. 
And how he saw sin, how he rightly saw sin, is how we ought to see sin now. If we don't see it as David saw it, then we are not seeing it correctly. So let's see how David saw his sin. Let's see how David saw his sexual sin. David saw his sexual sin as being against God. Against you, you only have I sinned, David writes. Now, David had sinned against a lot of people. He had sinned against Bathsheba. He had sinned against Uriah. He had sinned against the military commanders that he involved in his plot to kill Uriah. And in some sense, he had sinned against all of Israel. He had an obligation before God to lead the nation in a godly manner, to lead them on behalf of God in obedience to God. He had violated all of that to pursue his own selfish will. And so in some sense, he had sinned against the entire nation of Israel. Verse four, correctly understood, doesn't mean David didn't sin against any of those people. It is simply a way of highlighting that the one who was most sinned against was God himself. All sin is ultimately against God. God is the most violated person in every single act of sin. When a person has sinned sexually, it's very easy in our day and age to think that God is sort of like unaffected by it. That God doesn't really care that much one way or the other. And we have all kinds of rationalizations for this. We say things like, well, you know, God sees everything that happens in the whole universe. He, he knows all of this stuff. He, he sees what everybody does. We say things like, you know, God knew I would do this. I, I mean, like, since before I was born, God knows everything. He knew I would do this. Okay, and what else? And yet that somehow feels like some big point we make. God knew we would do it. We say God sees all the sexual sin in all the world. He's not surprised by anything any of us do. Okay, well, I agree. I don't think he's surprised. But again, what, what's the point? This is no big deal to God. He's not near as upset about sexual sin as what all these fundamentalist Christians are. Except that he is. And the 51st Psalm makes this very clear. When we involve ourselves in sexual sin, we sin against God. That's what sin is. It is an action taken first and foremost against God. Verse four, against you, you only have I sinned and what? Done what is evil in your sight. Now, now certainly killing Uriah is in view here, but don't, don't let yourself off the hook and say that only Uriah being killed is what is evil. The sexual sin that David committed is included here. It is evil in God's sight. Sexual sin is evil. All of our equivocations about sexual sin do not change the evil nature of it. 
All of the, well, you know, I'm just a red-blooded American man. What do you expect? (laughs) Doesn't change the evil nature of sin. The, well, my husband just wasn't providing the support that I needed at home. Doesn't change the evil nature of your sexual sin. The, well, you know, we're going to get married anyway. Doesn't change the evil nature of of sexual sin. That we really love each other, so it's okay. I mean, Brian, you told us last week, it's a great way to express love. (laughs) Doesn't change the evil nature of sexual sin. When we sin sexually, we have to see it for what it really is. And that's increasingly difficult in our culture who is telling us lies about sex. We have to see it for what it is. We have engaged in sin against God. We have engaged in what is evil in God's sight. Verse four, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. David saw sexual sin as deserving of judgment, which means the sexual sinner is deserving of judgment. Sexual sin just biblically uh, cannot be considered no big deal. It is something that warrants the judgment of God. It secures for ourselves the position of being a person deserving judgment without mercy. David saw his sexual sin as it really was against God evil, and deserving judgment without mercy. This is how David saw his sin. And so we we find from Psalm 51 that when we sin sexually, we need to be receptive to the Nathans in our lives. We need to see our sin for what it really is. And we also find this, we need to see ourselves as we really are. Verse five, surely I was sinful at birth, Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now, now this doesn't suggest that, uh, that David was conceived in sin, like his mother and father conceived him in sin. It doesn't suggest that. It is simply an acknowledgement that because of the sin of our first ancestors, all of us are born sinful. There is never a time in our entire existence where we are inherently righteous and good. No. We are inherently unrighteous. We are inherently sinful. Apart from Jesus Christ, we are not inherently good people who occasionally do bad things. We are inherently sinful people who might be sort of nice. Who might be sort of kind to our fellow man who might have a reasonable amount of concern for those who are hurting or disadvantaged in our society. But we remain inherently sinful. And it really only takes about, what, two or three months to see this develop in a human being? I mean, someone's born, and within like three months, you see, this is a big old sinner. Or a little, a little package of sinner, but you know what I'm saying. 
just a sinner. Just nasty acting toward people. (laughs) When you sin sexually, you have to see yourself as you really are. Not inherently good, but inherently sinful. And so when you sin sexually, to get where you need to go, you have to let go of the illusion of your goodness. If you don't do this, then you never come to the place of true repentance. You will stay stuck in a place of trying to justify how what you did was really just a mistake that you made and it really hasn't changed the fact that you are a fundamentally good person. And as long as we're trying to justify ourselves, as long as we are trying to lift up our goodness before God, then we never get to the place of true repentance. Whether we actually say these words or not, here's what a lot of us in our heads are saying to God. God, you know that I'm not really like that. God, you know that I'm a good person. You know I have a good heart. I'm a good person who just did a bad thing. You know this, right, God? You, you see this in me, right? You, you remember that I'm good, right, God? And here's a biblical truth. Sexual sinners must embrace. Apart from Christ, our righteousness, our goodness is as filthy rags to God. And so when we try to remind God that you know God, that I'm really a good person, we insult him. Because what we lift up to him for merit before him he actually sees as us offering him something that is disgustingly filthy. It's an insult. And I believe, not because I know anything personally, but just because there's a number of people here today and any group of people, this is usually true, that there are people here today who are refusing to repent. You will not truly repent because doing so means that you have to admit that you're wrong. It means you have to admit that you're not actually good, but you're sinful and you are refusing to let go of the story that you tell yourself no matter how many times you sin. The story you tell yourself is that's not who I am. I'm a good person. Your refusal to see yourself as you really are is keeping you from repentance. It is cutting you off from God's grace. And in most cases, it is also keeping you from making amends with those that you've sinned against. Because every time you start to apologize for how you have wronged another person, you just end up making excuses for yourself. And this applies to all kinds of areas of our lives, really any area where we've wronged another human being but it certainly applies to the area of sexual sin. When we sin sexually, it is so important to see ourselves as we really are and to let go of the illusion that we are inherently good. We have to let go of that illusion, that lie, and accept what is true about us. Verse one, have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, 
Blot out my transgressions. Verse three, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. When we, see, uh, when we sin sexually, we have to see ourselves as we really are, as transgressors. We are lawbreakers. We are those who have become a law unto ourselves, violating anything and everything that restricts whatever we feel like doing. We're people who won't yield their selfish desires enough to respect the boundaries that God has put in place for our own good and the good of others. Sexual sinners are transgressors. They transgress God's commands. They abuse the good gift of sex that God has given. They they tell the creator that they know better than he does how to use his creation. Sexual transgressors may not actually say these words, but with their actions they say, thanks for this great gift, God. But I don't have enough respect for it or you to use this gift according to your guidelines. Sexual transgressors violate marriage vows. They violate the fidelity that should be owed to a future spouse. They violate God's created order that men are for women and women for men. They violate God's good design of male and female, rejecting God's good creation in favor of gender anarchy in open defiance of God. When we have sinned sexually, we must see ourselves as we really are. We have to let go of the illusion of our inherent goodness. We have to admit that we are transgressors. We have to admit that we are sinners. Verse two, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse three, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. When we sin sexually, we have to own that we are sinners. Not good people who happen to sin. We're just simply sinners deserving of judgment. But we don't want to see ourselves this way. We want to see ourselves as good. But if we are going to be made right with God, and if we are going to be reconciled to those we have sinned against, we have to come to the place of seeing ourselves as we really are. We have to admit the truth about ourselves. And only when we do this can we repent before God and apologize to those we have hurt with any credibility. We have to see ourselves as people who are standing in need of mercy. Verse one again, have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Notice here, there are no justifications for what David's done. David doesn't say, God, you have to understand Bathsheba was just so beautiful, I couldn't resist. No rationalizations. Just the realization of being wrong. So wrong that we cannot explain our way out of it. So wrong that we cannot spread the blame around. So wrong that we have no way to justify ourselves. And so we see ourselves correctly. Someone standing simply needing mercy. And this is the right way to see ourselves when we've sinned sexually. And when we see our sin for what it is, and we see ourselves as we really are, it is only then 
that we come to the place where we can do what we must do, repent. Repent. The entire 51st Psalm is a Psalm of repentance. And it paints a picture for us of what repentance looks like. What a person who is truly repentant looks like. To truly repent is to recognize that you have no justification for what you've done. And so the only option you have, the only way forward, is simply to appeal to God for mercy. Again, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Well, what's the appeal to mercy based upon? It's, it's not based on anything like this. God, because you know that I'm actually a good person, let's just chalk this one up to being human and, and get back to the way things used to be. It's not like that. It is a realization of having no merit before God. It is a realization that you deserve nothing but judgment And so you have nothing to offer but to throw yourself on the mercy of God. Matthew Henry wrote of verse 1, David does not balance his evil deeds with his good deeds, nor can he think that his services will atone for his offenses. This is what we want to do. We want to balance things out. We want, to, we want to make amends ourselves. We want someone to tell us to go and do three good deeds and then it'll all be okay. But instead, what David does, Matthew Henry writes, is he flies to God's infinite mercy and depends upon that only for pardon and peace. David's plea here is a humble one. It is based entirely on God's unfailing love, God's compassion, God's mercy. David recognizes that he does not deserve what he's asking for. Here is a key to knowing if there is a true heart of repentance. A person who is truly repentant recognizes that I'm asking for something I don't deserve. As long as you think you deserve pardon and you tell everybody about it, as long as you think you are owed forgiveness, then you haven't really understood your offense. The repentant heart is one that recognizes I don't deserve what I'm asking for. Verse seven, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Uh, Hyssop is a plant that was used in purification rites for for lepers. And it was also the plant that was used to spread the blood uh, on the doorpost during uh, the Passover, if you're familiar with that story of uh, Egypt's deliverance. Uh, David is not asking here to be literally cleansed with hyssop. He is referring to it figuratively. And what he's doing is he's simply acknowledging that he is unclean and that he needs to be made clean by God. He recognizes that he cannot cleanse himself. He can't remove the filth from his life by doing some good things to make up for what he's done wrong. He's, 
He's recognizing that he's dirty. He is hopelessly dirty. He recognizes that he can only be cleansed by God. The repentant heart understands the extent of its filthiness. The repentant person understands that they need a cleansing that only God can bring about. And so they don't go about trying to clean themselves up. They turn to God for cleansing. They turn away from the filth of sin. They turn to righteous, holy God and ask him to do for them what they cannot do for themselves. Verse nine, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. The key here is yet another emphasis on on uh, this being something that we cannot do for ourselves. We can't justify. We, we can't hide God's uh, view of our sin. We, we can't shield God from seeing our sin. We can't blot out our own sin. Only God can do this for us. And so we turn away from sin. We turn to God, throw ourselves on his mercy, appeal to him and trust him to cleanse and to blot out our sin. And then... Verses 16 and 17. Do not, uh, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This is what we call godly sorrow. And no matter how many people try to make repentance an emotionless transaction of turning from sin and turning toward God, I will always contend that true repentance includes godly sorrow. I want to be clear to say that emotion alone is not repentance. Feeling really bad about something is not repentance. Repentance absolutely requires turning away from sin and turning toward God. But if we see our sin as we should, and if we see ourselves as we really are, then I don't see how true repentance can possibly be an emotionless thing. David here is not speaking against the sacrificial system that was in place at the the time, but he is making the point that what is of utmost importance is the condition of a person's heart. Ritual acts disconnected from heart involvement is insufficient. And so when we sin, when we sin sexually, and we've seen that sin for what it really is, and we've seen ourselves as we really are, a repentant person is going to have a broken and a contrite heart. A contrite heart is a grieving heart. Someone who is truly repentant for Uh, sin, including sexual sin, will grieve over that sin. And it is not condemnation. It is an appropriate grieving. So the repentant person sees their sin for what it is, sees themselves as they really are, appeals for mercy, appeals for cleansing, turns from their sin to God, Uh, to have their sin blotted out, they have a broken and a contrite or grieving heart. And the final thing that I'll uh, note about what true repentance looks like is true repentance always includes a renewed commitment to obedience. Verses 13 through 15. 
I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. So we see a number of things in those verses. We see service, we see witness, we see praise. A life lived for God, a life committed to obedience to God. Repentance always includes renewed commitment to obedience. Some of us here today, it is very likely, have past sexual sin that we have never repented of. Some of us here today, it is likely, are currently involved in sexual sin that we have not repented for. In either case, here is what you need to do. It's everything we've talked about today. You need to see your sin for what it is. You need to see yourself as you really are. And if you see each of those things correctly, then it should lead you to a place of repentance. Sin does horrible things to us. Here's one of the key things it did for David and one of the key things it does for all of us. David's sin robbed him of joy. In verse eight, we're told that David felt as though God had crushed his bones. Crushed his bones. And this is how sin leaves us feeling. Sexual sin always leaves us feeling this way. We feel spent. We feel crushed. We are robbed of joy. Why are we talking about all of this? Why are we doing this series? Why am I talking about repenting for sexual sin? Here's why. Because God wants something better for each and every one of you than that. God wants something better for you. And if you'll see your sin for what it is, see yourself as you are and repent, then you can receive the fruit that repentance brings. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant a willing spirit within me. The fruit of repentance is restored joy. The fruit of repentance is a renewed willingness to walk with God and submit to God in everything. And this is what God wants for you. And so if you've sinned in any way, but especially since this is in the context of sexual sin, if you've sinned sexually, you need to repent. And when you truly repent, God will restore the joy that sin has robbed from you. You cannot receive the fruit of repentance. You will not have joy until you actually repent. You can't get the fruit of repentance without repentance. You have to repent, and then you get its fruit. Today, I focus almost exclusively on what we need to do between ourselves and God when we sin sexually. Of course, there are always a whole lot more people involved when we sin sexually than just us and God. When we sin sexually, we do damage to people around us. 
And so in addition to repentance before God, we need to ask forgiveness of the people we've wronged. And some of the same principles we've seen in the 51st Psalm apply to how we relate to other people. When you've sinned sexually against someone, you have to come empty-handed. No justifications, no rationalizations, just a simple appeal for forgiveness. When you've sinned sexually, you're going to have to realize that it's going to take time to rebuild trust. You're going to have to submit to accountability without resentment. You're going to have to accept that until trust is restored, you're going to be viewed with some suspicion. You're going to have to understand that all of these things are simply the fruit of sin. They're hard, but they're the fruit of sin. And we'll talk about this more in a few weeks when we talk about recovering from adultery. But I appeal to you today, if you're involved in sexual sin, take what we have talked about today to heart. See it for what it is. See you as you really are. Repent. And then you will receive, instead of the fruit of sin, you'll receive the fruit of genuine repentance joy. And that's what God wants for you. And that's why we bother to talk about this. It is for your good that we say some of these hard things. Why don't you stand?